good morning and welcome to Hudson Institute here in DC. Uh, we are a research organization primarily aimed to promote American leadership for a secure, free, and prosperous future. And uh, my name is Jeremy Hunt, and I'm a media fellow here at the Institute. And uh, today I'm honored uh, to have uh, Professor John Ascanis here with us. And we're going to be discussing uh, force design and adaptability for our U.S. military. And um, Professor Ascanis is, is an assistant professor of politics at the Catholic University of America, where he works on the connections between the Republican tradition technology, and national security. He is currently working on two books, uh, A Muse of Fire, Why the U.S. Military Forgets What It Learns in War. Uh, and, and it also talks about what happens to wartime innovations when the war is over. And the Shot in the Dark, a history of the U.S. Army Asymmetric Warfare Group, uh, the first comprehensive overview of a unit that helped the Army adapt to the post-9-11 era of counterinsurgency and global power competition. His writing has appeared in Russian Analytical Digest, Triple Helix, The New Atlantis, Fair Ford, War on the Rocks, and the Texas National Security Review. Well, thank you so much, Professor, for, for being here with us. I really, I really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me on, Jeremy. Yes. Well, I wanted to kind of kick things off by uh, discussing um, really what you mean when you talk about force design and adaptability uh, for people at home. Um, you know, you've written a lot about the importance of this kind of organizational layer in the military and just kind of want to hear uh, what that means to you and, and why is it so significant? Yeah. So when we when we think about um, our military organizations, we often think about the military units, right, the actual units that are that are. And my my work has been primarily in the Army, but this holds true for the Air Force and the Navy as well. There's some important differences between how those services organize themselves uh, to to achieve the combat power that they need to protect our country. Um, we also we often focus on the the units that are sort of on the front lines. But any any sort of military expert or person with service experience will tell you that so much of what determines the effectiveness of those frontline organizations is. The rest of what happens, right? The logistical train, how the how command and control for those those units is organized, how those units task organize or or reorganize themselves for the particular missions that they are called to perform. Um, so my my area of focus is on how the U.S. military actually adapts in wartime environments. Amazing, amazing, and in, in a lot of your research, um, as you, you also take a kind of a historical perspective with a lot of this too. Uh, do you mind kind of just walking us through, just kind of roughly um, where we are today with this, and kind of how things have, have changed over you know the, the last several years? Yeah, sure. So the the U.S. military is a tremendously adaptive organization, and and it's transformed itself a number of times throughout its history. You know the you know, beginning in the Second World War, uh, we really had to we had a, what's called a cadre army, which we had a peacetime army that had military professionals, people whose careers were in the military, um, but not not really what we'd call standing army. Right. It, it wasn't it was not prepared on day one to sort of fight and win. It wasn't designed to do that. Right. It was designed that when the nation went to war, it would mobilize. It would it would draft or bring volunteers in large numbers into the force. That cadre army would be kind of the bones that would that would train and put muscle on, and then that's the force we would come take to war. That's how we. That's how we. Now that's very different from the navy, right? One of the reasons that navies and armies are different are historically, you know, the size of armies would fluctuate dramatically depending on the the character of the threat. Whereas the navy, you can't just build a navy on day one, right? You already have to have the navy right. that you want to go to war with, largely. Um, and so, you know, I think this, this is one of the really important differences between the services. 
So, but, but there was no Department of Defense, right? You had the Department of War and you had the Department of the Navy. And it wasn't until after the Second World War that we created what today is the Department of Defense, um, which isn't just about, it's not just a container to hold the three services, right? Um, uh, you know, the Air Force, Army, Navy, and then space. the Space Force was part of the Air Force, the Marine Corps is part of the Navy. Um, the Defense Department also manages this pipeline of research and development and industry that keeps our military's technological edge sharp um, and does a lot of other things too. So that's the kind of organization we 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 come into the Cold War with. Uh, and then throughout the Cold War, we also maintain for the first time uh, a sort of a large standing army. Um, there's, mo there's massive demobilization after the Second World War, but then we remobilize to fight the Korean War. Uh, and then we maintain uh, you know, a mix of conscripts and drafts uh, up through the Vietnam War, right? And um, the Vietnam War, unbelievably intensive, manpower intensive effort, fought over, um, you know, roughly a, uh, depending on where you look at it, you know, a eight year period, 10 year period that leads to the feeling that this kind of force structure isn't working for us anymore. It's not working. Uh, it is, it's not working militarily. The quality of the conscripts who are being brought in is, is diminishing. Uh, there's, it's not working socially, right? There's huge amounts of social unrest, both you know, due to the unpopularity of the war, but also due to the unfairness of the draft, right? So, you know, in uh, in the Second World War, there were very few, there were exceptions to the draft, right? There were exceptions for for people with sort of key civilian jobs. So, my great uncle, for instance, uh, ran a paper mill, and he was exempt from the draft because it was deemed a strategic industry. Um, but the number of people who fell under that exemption was very small, right? Well, as the United States prepares for kind of technological conflict in the 21st century or 20th century, um, it encourages more and more people to go to college. And, but it keeps this collegiate uh, draft exception on the books. And so by the time you get to Vietnam, things look very different. Suddenly, there's a huge number of people who are exempt from the draft. Suddenly, it's very plausible if you want to get out of the draft, you don't want to go to Vietnam for you to go to college. Um, you know, student, you know, there's a lot, a lot easier to go to college. Um, and so this is one of the things that creates this kind of social unrest. So, um, and again, this, by the way, we're, we're, the structural change we're talking about, I think primarily affects the army directly, uh, the Navy and the Air Force, you know, primarily manned by volunteers, although I think indirectly, right, one major source of volunteers for other services was people didn't want to join the army and get sent to fight in the infantry in Vietnam. Um, so we move after 1975 to what's called an all-volunteer all force, uh, where you know, everyone who joins the military is has joined because they volunteered for service. Um, that's one really important change. Another important change, which, which is maybe more subtle, is the construction uh, of a series of what are called combatant commands. So in World War II, in Korea, in Vietnam, when we went to war, we uh, we largely stood up new command structures just to prosecute those wars, Right. Now, by by the time you get to Vietnam, there is this thing called Pacific Command, but it's 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 and it's very important for uh, for some of the logistics in Vietnam, but it's not as operation, it's not very operationally involved in Vietnam. Most of the important decisions are being made in MACV, uh, which is an acronym for the the command structure for Vietnam. Well, as we encounter global threats, and especially after uh, in the nineteen eighties and nineteen nineties, as we are more become more becoming less concerned about 
discrete big wars like Vietnam, like World War II, and more concerned about smaller, persistent security challenges all over the globe, we really begin to kind of supercharge this combatant command structure. So we're providing it more resources, more staff, so that we kind of always have expertise, planning, ability to act all over the world. And so, and this is the kind of force structure that we take to Iraq and Afghanistan after 9-11. Now, in both places, there is there are command structures that have stood up uh, that are actually kind of running the day-to-day -day aspects of the war. But this global combatant command structure is, is, is one of the key factors that has enabled us to have persistent military operations all over the world, right? So, you know, every, your, your average American is certainly aware of what we're doing, you know, that we were in Iraq, that we were in Afghanistan. They might be aware that we've been in Syria, uh, not directly prosecuting fighting the Assad regime, but in pursuing ISIS in Syria. They're probably less aware of the kind of day-to-day -day drumbeat of military activity in literally over 100 countries all around the yeah. world, in training missions, in... Uh, in advisory assistance, in you know now logistical assistance, the war in Ukraine, um, in all kinds of of low level missions that are usually not violent, uh, but that contribute to American global military power. And and just uh, one thing on that too is when I was in the when I was in the military, that was one of the coming home. You know, when I was on leave, so many of my friends would be shocked to hear about just some of the types of deployments that people in the military are getting nowadays. You know. During that time, it was everyone was thinking about Afghanistan or Iraq. Um, but I had friends getting deployed to Djibouti, and they, so they, they were in Africom and in African Command, and I mean all over. I mean, so it really is our, our forces really are, uh, you know, spread out quite a, quite a bit. Um, and at that time, when I got deployed to Ukraine, um, that was even at that point was kind of seen as, seen as something that oh that's interesting. That's not the Middle East, you know. What's going on in Ukraine? Um, we, and we were, of course, training for what was then this kind of hypothetical uh, threat of, of Putin uh, launching an invasion uh, against Ukraine. And, um, and so anyway, so I, I, I think that's a, such a good point to bring up is just this kind of combatant command structure is so different from, uh, you know, from from what a lot of people kind of think about when you when you when you consider uh, military service. Absolutely. And that contributes to, you know, again, if your focus is primarily on these, these big famous units, you know, first division, you know, 101st Airborne, 75th Range Regiment, whatever. It's all you're thinking about. That you know, those those units don't haven't necessarily changed that much. I mean, the technology's changed, trainings changed, whatever. But that structure hasn't changed that much historically. Yeah. But the context in which the structure operates has radically changed, right? So, as you know, most deployments today are not deploying a whole ballot battalion or B or BCT or much less a division, right? I can't remember. I mean, the last time we actually deployed a division was probably the invasion of Iraq in 2003, 20 years ago, right? But what we have instead is because we have this combatant command structure, which can support you know, staffing for these sort of task forces that can organize things and missions in the field, we'll take little pieces of enablers, of detachments of units, of companies, platoons, and deploy those kind of piecemeal to right. missions, as you said, like the Ukrainian Vice and Assistant Mission. Most Americans probably had no idea that from what 2015 until early 2022, there was a, a complete, a steady rotation of Army, National Guard, and other uh, uh, enablers conducting advice and assist missions in Ukraine, training the Ukrainian army, right? Most people and, have no idea, but that's only level. a... Yeah. yeah, that's right, at, at the battalion level or lower, right? Or lower, battalion yeah. would be the biggest deployment to that kind of a mission, right. yeah.
That's exactly right. And when I was there, we were we were a squadron, a Cavs squadron, uh, but even honestly less than that. It was basically a squadron light. That's how we would have uh, described it. Yep. Um, and uh, me as a young second lieutenant, I was the Ford S2, the Intel officer there, and, uh, and I learned a lot there. Got my promotion to first lieutenant and um, and really, really enjoyed the experience there. Um, and and another thing, too, that was huge when I was when I was in two is how what you mentioned, like the kind of big famous units. They're now regionally aligned with with each command, mm-hmm. command as well. Um, and and right. so the idea is that you would, you know, kind of study your, you know, whatever uh, region you're aligned with. You, you kind of try to at least somewhat study uh, the, the the types of uh, threat there. Um, but um, but, you know. The training sometimes isn't always so specific uh, to um, you know to the area they're going in, and I, and I kind of want to talk about that a little bit about the kind of training um, because uh, you've written a little bit about how we you, you believe that the the training should be specific to the threat that we are dealing with, and, and um, w- what are some of your your thoughts on, on that end? Well, yeah, so it's funny we we have this regionally aligned system now, and by the way, so this is officially stood up I think in twenty fourteen. Um, you know, it, it wasn't – I think you could easily get the impression that before 2014 there was no regional alignment, uh, and that's not exactly true, right? There were particular units that had steady rotations to South Korea, to Germany. Um, you had units, especially in the, the Army Special Forces. Uh, special Forces groups historically have been aligned with particular regions. Um, so one group does Latin America, one group does, you know, East Asia, one group does right. Middle East, uh, but not for the kind of the big army, so to speak. Um, and this is an army policy, I believe, not a – I don't think this applies to Air Force and um, Navy. But one problem with the way that we did – we kind of did it halfway, right? There's kind of halfway alignment because we – you know, that, that regional alignment would affect deployments. It would affect training on the margins. But we we did not pursue allowing units to change their force structure or changing the force structure of units to match the particular threats that they face in those regions, right? So, you know, a, a a BCT that's aligned with Europe, you know, if if the threat there is Russia, that needs a very that needs a different. It's going to go to war. It would actually go to war with a different force structure than a BCT that was supporting, you know, operations in the east in the East Pacific, right? right. Or in East Asia in the Pacific, right? Or in Africa. But we we in our regional alignment, we did not take the step further and actually change our force structure training doctrine. To specifically align particular units with threats, and there is a re- reason for that, which is when there's a big, when something big goes down, everybody's going to go. And I think that's yeah. There's this tension in American doctrine, and this is, goes to the problem of the all volunteer force too, which is we want to have this regional approach, but we only have the force structure to do sort of small missions with that approach. And if there's a big thing that comes along, everybody's going to go. So then you would be taking, you know, if you regionally aligned, I don't know, like 11th striker or something with um, East Asia, and then it has to go to, to Russia, then suddenly you're taking a unit which isn't prepared for its force structure to Russia. So there is a there is a kind of logic in not regionally aligning that much. But I think there's, again, I think there's a real tension here between our desire to have a one-size-fits-all army and the need to actually adapt to the specific threats that we face. Absolutely. And um, I wanted to talk to about um, your scholarship as a whole dealing with um, force design, adaptability, and, and sometimes that's juxtaposed against uh, some scholarship that's that's uh, studying the culture in the army. And so I kind of wanted to, to look at that a little bit more to, uh, to, to understand kind of the differences uh, between those two approaches. Yeah, well, so, you know, we, there's a large literature on 
what's called service culture or strategic culture sometimes is not exactly the same about the um the ways that we want to fight uh and that that then shape how we organize ourselves how we think about ourselves um and there's some logic to this right the the military service is embedded in our society is embedded in our political institutions and those are going to produce preferences which are sort of stable over time so for instance um our military historically has been more casualty averse than some other militaries right and that's makes sense right we have a military with um you know uh filled with our citizens we think of them as citizens they vote their parents vote their siblings vote um there's a political pressure against casualties uh we have also tended to have a kind of industrialized and kind of high-tech high education high training military um relative to maybe our competitors at any given moment in time and so again that tends to you want to preserve this sort of precious resource we're not going to be sending the opposite would be like you know the russians at stalingrad or the japanese banzai charges where it's just everybody's disposable um so th there is something to this idea however i do think that we have historically when you ask why didn't we change why didn't we adapt one reason is often given is culture. There's some kind of cultural, internal, informal resistance to change. And I, I think this is largely overestimated. I think we hide a lot of process problems, a lot of personnel problems, a lot of incentive problems behind this idea of culture. Because if it's culture, then nobody's responsible and there's nothing we can do to change it. Whereas if it's about process or personnel or or incentives, then we have to make hard decisions about you know, changing the institution as it currently exists, creating winners and losers. There's all kinds of other other things that come along with that. Yeah. And um, when you look at the, I kind of want to rewind back in time just a little bit um, to the, you um, mentioned before about the, the the advent of the all-volunteer force in, in the mm -hmm. 70s after the Vietnam War. Um, and at that point, how do you think that affected our force design um, and, and our ability to adapt? Kind of how did that um, affect the, those parts that you're talking about, um, the the policy, the people, um, and the um, and, and type of um, programs that were in the Army at that time? I mean, it was, it was a definitive change, massive change. Impossible to underestimate how radical a change it was um, because it did a number of things. Um, the... It changed who who entered the army, and for the first few years, like a, a lot of the one of my controversial opinions is is an the army has this narrative about itself and, and the kind of malaise after the Vietnam War, and I think that a lot of what is attributed to demo, demoralization after losing in Vietnam is actually the growing pains of the volunteer army, because mm -hmm. you think about you know who wants to join the army in 1973, 1974, 1975, right? They're not getting the cream of the crop. They went to the all-volunteer force before they adjusted pay structure to actually be able to recruit people. So the pay was very bad. And so they were getting they were getting very low quality individuals, basically. Um, and so like, you know, low intelligence, low skill, low motivation, whatever. Um, and it took them several years to develop, you know, the, you know, approve the pay, develop the kind of the, the, the institutions they needed, like, you know, you need a lot more marketing and a lot better marketing for an all-volunteer force than you do for a conscript force, right? So it took right. them a while. It took them several years to actually achieve this. Um, it it created a dilemma for the Army, which was after Vietnam, they had one big mission, which was 
conventional deterrence of the Soviet uh, Soviet Soviets in Europe. Uh, I say conventional deterrence because there were a number of political issues that made nuclear deterrence, just deterring them by saying, if you do anything, we're going to nuke you, less credible and therefore less effective. Um, and so the idea is we need to actually have a force that can credibly fight on day one long enough to create escalation dynamics that would make a credible nuclear threat, which then paradoxically deters them from acting in the first place. So if you have if you if you can credibly threaten that you're not going to win on day one or day two, you're not going to have a fiat complete, then when if you attack, you don't know what's going to happen. There's going to be a real brawl. It's long enough to mobilize conventional forces from the United States. And we practiced this. We had a, a, we started a series of what were called reforger exercises, which were basically mobilization and deployment exercises to Europe. Um, and in that whole process, the risk of nuclear escalation rises, you know, exponentially. So there was this very particular tailored deterrent strategy, but they had to do it with this all-volunteer force, which was much smaller than historically you'd had in Europe, right? Because most of the force structure, the army goes from like a million people to 400,000 people, 450. And so and most of that force structure is coming out of Europe, right? Uh, and the army had already pulled a lot, a lot of forces out of Europe to fight in Vietnam. So what they do with General Creighton Abrams and the secretary, the chief of staff of the army, what they decide to do is basically maximize the tooth-to-tail ratio in the active force. So the active force is designed not to fight a long war, but to – so in the Army, you have the Army and the reserves, right? You have a much larger reserve of people whose you know, primary day job is not being a soldier but doing something else, and then they can be activated. So we're going to put all of the active force, as much tooth, as much combat power, short-term combat power in the active force so that we can fight in, on day one. And then we'll put everything else, everything we can in the reserves, right? And so this results in this massive imbalance in capability. So, for example, something like 95% of Army civil uh, affairs personnel are in the reserves. So when you go to fight like in Iraq, one of the reasons why there's such a mess in March, April of Iraq, of the invasion of Iraq is the civil affairs personnel haven't been mobilized yet. So you're going to war without the people who you want to take over and help take over right after you win. Um, just right. for one example. So this is one imbalance. The other really imbalance is then you have to rely on contractors, right? There's simply no model for an army. If you're if you're putting all the tooth in the active force, that all the other little jobs that uh, uh, have been done by soldiers are going to be done by civilians. So you want you want every job that can be done by someone who's not a soldier uh, to be done by someone who's not a soldier, so that everyone who uh, is you're getting the most bang for your buck with the small number of billets the Congress has allocated for you, right? But isn't so, there some isn't there some danger there too though? If you have the ratio between uh, civilians and, and natural uh, you know, uniform service members becomes you know just too high. I mean, if you look at the numbers now, it looks like in a few years we could get to a one to one ratio where we have a, a a civilian to every one member in uniform. Aren't there some dangers on that end as well? But, so I should clarify, you have civilians, and then you have contractors. I'm not talking about government right. civilians, I'm talking about contractors. We're right. already way, I'm sure we're already way over one-to-one -one ratio of contractors. Right. Um, particularly when we're whenever we're doing anything abroad, right? All, a lot of the logistics is going to be contracted out, a lot of the um, you know, services. Like I'm sure when you were deployed, I'm sure your your defect, your like dining facility was run by you know, not screen suiters and probably oh. not Americans. Of course. Um, of course. Yeah. Well, you say of course, but that and wasn't the that case before the volunteer force. 
Got it. And, and and so your concerns are cabined by as long as it's contractors are not fully, uh, you know, relying so heavily on DOD civilians. So that you, you draw. Well, uh, it's a, uh, well, DOD civilians is maybe a different problem. So I'm, I'm just talking about what are the effects of the all volunteer force? So that makes sense. You know, the, you have these massive effects. And so today you have people complaining about contractors. Um, and, you know, that's sort of, that, of course. that's what you get with the all volunteer force. Yeah. Um, so the challenge, of course, today is here's the problem. That what Creighton Abrams built was well designed for the specific strategic challenge that the United States faced of conventional deterrence in Europe, right? It was not designed as a Swiss Army knife. It was not designed for every kind of mission we might have. It was designed for one mission, and it achieved its purpose. We did not fix that after the Cold War, right? We never came along and thought, how do we redesign the force for the actual world we find ourselves in. Now, there have been, obviously, there have been brilliant, you know, Army senior leaders who have done things to make the force more modular, to make the force more deployable, to, um, you know, tinker on the edges regional alignment, but we've never had a kind of fundamental rethinking of the force structure. Um, and the problem we face now is, you know, we are looking to deter an adversary that is in many ways stronger than the Soviet Union, um, uh, it's more threatening than the Soviet Union uh, with a and in a and in a global context in which there are other threats besides the Soviet Union or besides China. I'm talking about China uh, with a force that's designed to do one thing. Right. So, you know, it's it's you know, when we went to Iraq, what I think many Americans don't realize is we the Iraq, we basically can't fight a war larger than Iraq on the all-volunteer force, larger or more difficult or more costly than Iraq, right? Iraq, if you look at what happened with forced rotations, with stop-loss measures, with other, we basically used literally every trick in the book short of, you know, uh, we, we, I mean, I'll just say, we used every trick in the book to pull off the Iraq mission without any kind of deeper social mobilization. So anything bigger than Iraq won't work with this model. And we can already know that. We already do know that. Um, and yet this has, you know, in my mind, this is the kind of, this should be a, you know, five alarm fire. Like we are facing global threats and we have a force structure, which we know will not work against those threats. So not I think there's a huge amount of complacency about this right now. Yeah. And not to mention the fact that we have a major recruitment crisis right now too. So oh yeah. We couldn't do Iraq today. We, we simply yeah. could not do Iraq today. It's another thing that I think, I mean, we, the air force could like the, the first part. Yeah. We could, we could invade Iraq. I don't think it would be as smooth as it was in 2003, by the way, if it happened today, um, for both because of the degrades and degrading in our capability, as well as new capabilities that I think have made it easier for a kind of adversary to fight in an asymmetric fashion. Um, so we couldn't do Iraq today. And uh, yeah, we've had we have this recruiting crisis now, uh, which is afflicting the army, especially. Yes. Um one thing uh, you, you've written quite a bit about is how this kind of practice where the army will often kind of stand up these organizations uh, tailored to you know whatever fight we might be in, but then kind of jettisons the organization once that particular conflict uh, it comes to a conclusion. Um, what are your thoughts on that? And why does that? Why do we continue to see that that dynamic? And what kind of what are the the, the harms of that? Yeah, well, I think I think you, I need to talk about the the harms and the benefits. So this is my this is the first book I'm writing on why the U.S. military forgets what it learns in war. And I argue that it's not really about doctrine. It's not really about culture. It's really about this process of demobilization. So we we face new challenges. 
We build new organizations to address those challenges, whether they be task forces or, uh, you know, new stood up ad hoc organizations. And we're pretty good at actually meeting those challenges. Um, and then because of the bureaucratic and budgetary drawdown after a war, those organizations get destroyed. That's what we saw in in Iraq and, and in Vietnam. So, you know, to use a recent example, pretty much all of the institutions which we built to do counterinsurgency, to do uh, to understand this complex social environment, to do rapid technology adaptation, to counter the IED threat, they've all been destroyed at this point. Um, and, you know, including, you know, the counterinsurgency academy at Fort Leavenworth, uh, the asymmetric warfare group, right, which I'm also writing a book about, the rapid equipping force, the joint IED defeat organization, um, could go on and on about these, not to mention the way we organized our our, our uh, uh, general, general purpose forces, you know, the way we reorganized units like the unit you were in to have much more intelligence personnel to handle the kind of, kind of the complex counterinsurgency environment. That's all changed and been basically forgotten. Um, so this happens it, it because uh, skilled practice is expensive, right? Um, any military service is going to spend most of its time practicing, training. And you can only train in so many things. And the more you train, the better you are. And so if you are you don't want to spread your training out over a bunch of tasks that you don't expect to actually have to do, you want to focus your training on what is the next big threat that you're going to face. So I think there's something quite strategic about this. Um, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing that we forget what we learn in war. I think you have to just look at what is the, you know, what did we lose that we could actually have, would have been useful to retain? And what did we lose that's going to be really costly to reachieve, right? So I think, for example, one thing that we we really should not have done is shut down these technology procurement organizations like Rapid Equipping Force and Asymmetric Warfare Group. And Asymmetric Warfare Group had this unique capacity to go to the very front line of battle with trained and ready personnel, not to fight, but to observe, to, to assist units there, to give them you know guidance from experienced personnel, but then to actually see what was going on at the edge of the threat and bring that back into the Army zone kind of doctrine concept acquisitions processes and help the army adapt faster. That would have been so useful in Ukraine. And I've talked to any number of of army personnel, to any number of people who work kind of inside defense acquisitions, and they everyone has felt that this was a major mistake to shut down this organization. Um so that those are just a couple of examples of of what we might have retained. Yeah. Yeah. I, I want to um, talk to just kind of get your your thoughts on. So we've kind of defined the problem. We talked about some of your, um, you know, your thoughts on, on where the army's at now. I want to look at the future a little bit. Um, what are the, some of the reforms that you would recommend um, if we want to make sure that we have a, a force structure that um, is going to be able to, um, you know, withstand it? And it's probably one of my one of my last questions here uh, as we're wrapping up. What do you think as we look towards the future? Um, what are those rec- reforms and kind of recommendations that you would uh, that you would make uh, to our current current force structure? Well, I think the number one thing is the number one lesson from Cold War history is you have to adapt your force structure to the problems that you have, the threats that you have, and frankly, you need to be ruthless in that. And I think we have not been ruthless. I think one of the things we're seeing in Ukraine is that we have been very successful so far in building partner capacity, in build, using logistics and intelligence to really support um, our allies, um, and not just in Ukraine, but also presumptively in, in other parts of Europe. So I think we have a unique opportunity to 
address the threat of Russian threat through these practices, intelligence, logistics, the arsenal democracy sort of approach, and encourage um, Europeans to further develop their own force structure. And then turn to the threat, which is military significant, which is militarily significant, which is China. And frankly, we, we have an army, we have a Goldilocks problem. Our army is too small to really, it's too small as it, as constituted to actually um, prosecute a war with these countries, but it's large enough that it's sucking a lot of resources away. So I think we should, particularly with the recruiting challenge, I think we ought to, you know, my radical idea for reform would be to look at the cadre army approach again. Look at what can we do to retain um, professionals who can, who are very skilled and experienced and who could rebuild an army from, you know, in a mass kind of conscription and volunteer approach in case of a large war, and then use those resources to really bolster the Air Force and the Navy, which are going to be on the front lines of any kind of conflict with China. So, um, you know, I think we have been, and then I think that, you know, I won't speak to them, but the Navy, the Air Force, I think have had significant problems as well, especially uh, Navy surface warfare is just in a miserable shape, seen from people who who know that area or not building enough submarines. So, you know, I think we have to be ruthless. We need to adapt our force structure, not to hypothetical threats, not to some universal Swiss Army knife approach, but to the actual threats that we face. And we need to do it sooner rather than later because time is running short. Absolutely. Wow. Well, thank you uh, for that. And, and just for it, it's it's one thing that I think we need, to, we need to be having more of these conversations just about force design as a whole. And, you know, where I think um, this is something that we need to talk more about just in not only just within the military, but also um, with Congress and everything to make sure we're raising awareness because, you know, we are in a, we, we face serious threats abroad. And I just appreciate you, Professor, for being with us and sharing your expertise with us. Um, and we're going to keep thinking about this and we hope we can have you back another time. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much, Jeremy. Yes, and for those watching at home, please uh, stay up to date with us. You can uh, find uh, all of our upcoming events at hudson.org. And we just appreciate you joining us today. <laughs>